Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Venture Property Podcast, and thank you very much for listening. I know that you listen to these on the way to work, or some of you even at work when you're supposed to be working, and it means a great deal to me that you take time out of your day you know, to listen to these podcasts and also to share them on social media. Today, as always, we are sponsored by Land Insight, which is, in my opinion, the ultimate tool for people to find all the deals in which they need. It's something that I use on an almost daily basis. I use it to find land. I work through comps to find you know, similar properties, even similar size properties that are sold in that area per square foot, which is a big thing for my due diligence. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, then why not? You know, I really, I keep saying it, I wish you could send to all in your contacts. I wish I could get everybody who listens to this podcast to send to all. Now, if you've got one nugget of information from this podcast, please, please, please do share it. The more people that listen to this, the better. And then we'll get some even better guests on as well. So today I've got a great guest. Um, known this guy for a, for a while. We've had a few conversations. And I really like the direction that his business is going in and the kind of things he's doing. So when I was thinking about putting guests together for this show, he was definitely on the list. And I'd just like to introduce Mark Stokes from SAS Alliance. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm really well, Ryan. Thank you. And thank you very much for reaching out and extending an invite to join your, your fantastic podcast. Uh, I've listened to many episodes and you're doing great work out there, buddy. Well done. Oh, you've already started it off by charming me. You're going to do well, aren't you? <laughs> I like it. So why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a brief background about you and an introduction about, about how this whole crazy property thing for you started and has sort of come to pass then? Yeah, well, I'll take you, take you through a very, very brief journey for those that don't know me. Uh, born and bred in Lincolnshire, uh, I left home after a very conservative background um, to do my degree in 1988. I went to, well, it was, it was Polytechnic back then actually, Sheffield City Polytechnic to do my degree in construction. Now, uh, when I left my degree in 1992, uh, the market was, was going through some degree of turmoil um, and I entered at what I believe was a a really poor area within the construction industry at that time. It was suffering really badly, but there was a massive shift in the market and British Telecom were losing their monopoly on the, the copper markets. The, you know, there was very little fibre optic at the time. And I was first employed, I've only ever had two employers in my life. My first employer was a large US corporate looking for engineers who could eventually grasp the nettle and run their infrastructure program in the UK. So that was my first introduction to corporate life. I very quickly left construction behind and started running layouts of fibre optic networks throughout the country. And of course, when you've got fibre optic networks, you've also need data centres. So very quickly at a tender age of, sort of 23, 24, I was running you know, tens of millions of pounds worth of of uh, nationwide infrastructure, finding data centers, uh, constructing them, setting up new companies. And uh, that gave me a real opportunity to, to get into business, um, to understand the dynamics of working for large corporates. They certainly took the, the US mantra of uh, throwing you in the deep end and uh, giving mm -hmm. you a very long, long leash. Um, so I was absolutely saturated with responsibility and absolutely loved that. 
I'd always taken the view in my life of, you know, like I will just take any task on board, be it good, bad, indifferent, and I will just make it mine. So I, I progressed and uh, ran the UK infrastructure arm, then progressed across Europe. Um, in 1999, I moved across to run the Asia-Pacific rollout based out of Sydney. So I was looking after Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, New Zealand, Australia, and Philippines. So I ran, was fortunate enough to be based in Sydney during the millennium. Um, so I'd only been married four months and came home and said to my wife, would you like to move to Australia? <laughs> uh, so uh, <laughs> that was quite interesting. Um, and then I was uh, asked to come back to run a, a large pan-European rollout, about half a billion US dollars of infrastructure. And I was running in excess of a billion dollars in, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and then the, the market started to fracture. Um, we had the, the dot-com bubble um, starting to burst. And I had what I guess many people would, would consider a, a nightmare situation, but I, looking back on it, I consider it a real privilege um, of having um, been the lead director in the closure of a half a billion a year turnover company. Mm. Uh, you learn a lot growing businesses, but not many people have had the, the um, I suppose, the distinct displeasure of, of uh, closing down a company, but you learn a, a lot about business by understanding the lessons learned and, and closing business so therein was the end of the, the first chapter and that that end around about 2002 as I I closed the lights out on that business and literally turned the lights out and um, made myself redundant on the way out so that was the end of phase one Brian wow so I'm just going to before we get into the to the meat of the property podcast one of the questions that um have just come up from there is you you mentioned that you learned quite a few lessons about closing businesses I'd, I'd be keen to know what uh, to know what the key one from that was well there were, there were a number I think the the first one I would have to say is is how to work and manage uh, people and uh, above all the value of and the true meaning of what leadership is mm-hmm. um, to give you an example when you're making hundreds of people redundant, leadership is right at the, the forefront. Um, I've had to go and see clients and tell them that despite five or 10 years of solid relationships and thank you for the business, uh, and we, we're a fundamental part of their supply chain, to say actually the US has now decided to give me instruction to pull up the drawbridge and we, we will no longer take any, any orders. However, we still wish to be paid for all the works that we've been done, uh, that we've been and done over the course of the last year. So, you know, that brings you into potentially conflict situations. Um, And you have to, uh, there is no manual to, you can't buy a manual on how to close a business or how to have those type of conversations or how to, as an example, making 200 people redundant and declaring them in, in a process um, I decided to hire a, a very large hall and invite everybody and tell them from the stage, you know, straight from my heart, exactly what's happening. This is what's happening. This is why. This is the process. 
and you invite a whole wave of of different levels of emotion. You get the tears, you get the anger, you get people who empathise, people who sympathise, uh, and anything in between, really. And you almost have to expect that as life's rich tapestry. Um, knowing that you're not doing it, uh, you're not doing it to, uh, you know, out of out of malice, but you have to be seen to be taking control, uh, being very open, transparent, and clear with the message. And I've always been the, whether that be through my territorial army background, business background, any form of leadership, um, just be who you are. Um, and I, I guess wear your heart on your sleeve. And, uh, you know, that was, that was some of the key lessons for me. Um, but I could go, I, maybe I'll write another book on that one day. But, um, yeah, certainly an interesting time. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be a book that um, that I'd definitely like to read. And I think we can always can always learn a lot from from everybody in life. And a lot of the time, it does it just does stem back to people. Um, when you think about business, it it genuinely is people. And I've genuinely thought that when you understand that, that really does change the game of business for you in whatever level or stage of business that you're at. People are so crucial. Um, it's just yeah sometimes I think people forget that so that's um that's sort of the first stage then then what happened what happened next what happened after that well one of the one of the gentlemen I'd I'd uh, employed a few years before who was just an exceptional talent um I'd grown really really quite close and he was one of the one of the people that unfortunately I, I had to make redundant as indeed everybody was, was made redundant in that process um, his name's Nigel Green, and he's probably the uh, uh, the most sophisticated um, property investor I've met. Bank grade due diligence at a level that is just exquisite. And um, Nigel approached me as I was going through this process and said, "Look, you know, we've I've got a, an opportunity with a UK PLC um, to to invest to create a brand new business." where we'll provide uh, 49% of the working capital. The PLC will provide 51%. We have our business plan, design, build, and operate of mission-critical data centers and power stations. Um, so that's what I did after I closed the light out on the, uh, the other business. Um, we got PLC approval, and we started up a brand new organization. We invested on day one a very substantial amount of personal capital. Um, and took 49% equity in this subsidiary organization. And we grew that from scratch. And you have to bear in mind, this was a, a data center related organization and the data center industry had just, I mean, it was on its ass. Um, so not the, uh, probably not the most inspiring time to set up a new company, but we had faith in our ability, um, the forward direction and momentum of the market. And uh, we grew that business to, it, it ended up having a turnover of around about 70 million um, uh, sterling. Uh, we grew that from 2002 to 2008. And we sold our 49% stake back to the UK PLC uh, end of 2007, early 2008, which I'd love to tell you was immaculate timing, but um, <laughs> I don't think any of us could have forecast what was about to come with the emotional and financial turmoil in the markets. But um, 
yeah, we made a, a very handsome return on, on our investment. Um, and the beauty of that, Brian, was that I could sell my stake back to the company, to the PLC. And I also kept my, my job. And I was, I was managing director of a, a number of businesses at that time. And I got heavily involved then in mergers, acquisitions. Um, and one thing I'd always done in my career, I, I mentioned earlier on that I always took on whatever was offered. Um, so if there was a crappy situation came along, you know, I'd raise my hand and said, yep, yeah, give it to me. I'll sort that out as well. Mm. So any dirty job that came along, you know, Mark got it. Um, and there was some, you know, going to Australia was one of those examples where, you know, there was, um, it was maybe conflict or there was a real depth of requirement. I've been, uh, I've been a corporate troubleshooter for 20 years and that might be the independent investigator in a uh, fatality. Um, so things that really do, they see as something on your soul and, and every time you investigate, whether it be a 20 million pound uh, renegotiation of a banking facility that's breached its bank long stop or, or a, a fatality or, you know, any number of things. Um, as sad as each one is and as devastating it is for people who have been affected, there's also learning as well. And that learning forward propels and creates that momentum to try as far as is reasonably practical that those things are never, ever allowed to happen again. Uh, again, certainly on my watch or, or indeed in my, in my area of imp influence and impact. Incredible to, to hear that, to hear that story as well. It's not, it's not one that, that I've heard in that much detail before. So I, yeah, thank you for, thank you for telling me that. And just, I really like that you just took on anything that, you know, like, like you say, the dirty jobs, you wasn't afraid of that. Um, it's that's, yeah, that's commendable. And, also, it's the learnings. The thing that, when, well, when I think about you anyway, I do think learning. I mean, you know, you, you have books out and you give a lot of good information to people. So, and and you always seem to be chasing the learning as well. So not only are you teaching others, but you're, you're learning yourself, which is, um, is crucial um, to, to move forward. Well, I think, the, uh, I think one of the, the, the biggest strengths in business is humility mm. of not not pretending you've got all the answers all the time i mean i've i've grown throughout my career by you know standing on the shoulder of giants you know any number of times um but humility is just so incredibly important we're always growing all the time um you know we're, we we have to keep moving we we have to you know keep that traction there because life will just well, just passes by to be honest um that, that remember that phrase say uh, you do what you've always done you'll get what you've always got well I don't, I don't believe in that phrase to be honest i think it's worse than that if you do what you've always done you'll continue to become less and less and less relevant in today's society things are moving so fast um that you know change is a, an absolute imperative and I, I refer to it as the power of anticipation. That's me to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and be able to anticipate where the market's going and how you can create that point of interception between your skill sets, your resources, 
and the market opportunity. Um, now that that power of anticipation, that really is a, a very economically viable zone to invest your time in creating. Mm. I completely agree, especially on the the speed of how things are moving, especially in today's society. It is going so fast and it is only going to get quicker. It really is. It's not gonna not gonna slow down. Then so then property comes along. How did what how did you decide to to choose property to get involved in property? Well I um I had a shall we say an adult conversation with my my chief exec at the time and said look this is where where my life's going um the more successful i am i was running seven i was on the board of seven different companies at that time and the more successful i was in corporate life the less time i was spending with my four children mm. um so we we had a, a very sensible adult conversation and uh, i stayed for a further nine months to do a lot of corporate restructuring um, and, and again further M&A activity and then I, I closed the uh, closed the door on that chapter of my life and, and left corporate life for, for the last time that was uh, just into 2015. Now I'd, I'd always had a background in infrastructure in real estate um, whether it be the business I set up building um, microwave and cellular base stations for the mobile 3G and, and later 4G networks in the in or 2G and then 3G actually before 4G back in the 90s um, to large data centers, power stations. I've been a director, a non-exec director, chairman. Um, so I was very comfortable with with property. Um, so I wanted to continue my personal investment in property. Um, I have got buy-to-lets. I've got HMOs. I, I really I store my wealth in those rather than them being you know, economic generating engines for me. Um, I'm not given some of the, the scale of projects. I mean, some of the data centers were 50 to 100 million each, and we'd be doing dozens of them at, at, at each time. So not afraid of a few zeros on the end of um, projects. So we move rapidly into commercial conversions and developments, to be honest. Mm. Um, so we've... Uh, in the last two years, we've had about 10 of those uh, commercial conversions, so about 160, 170 apartments. Um, but one of the one of the areas that uh, is quite intriguing for me was my decision to leave corporate life was to seize control, take control of my own personal economy and every part of it as well. I've been a loyal corporate citizen for 26 years. Um, but the one thing I, I couldn't work out initially was was my my distrust of pensions, which I've been faithfully paying into. But my view of pensions was, um, well, you know, I'd looked at my statement once a year, looked at it for about five seconds, thought that's not very good, and hopefully it'll be better next year. So I had to had to find a way of forging ahead with with property and various other business investments, but also to to claim control of my pensions and uh, I worked out in 2015 that that would be through a, a SAS, a small self-administered pension scheme um, and since then the SAS pension has been riding shotgun with with my various other business property and investment strategies. So a whole lot of things came together 
as I left corporate life and got to be honest, you know, uh, three and a half, well, four years ago, did I think I would have scratched that 35 year itch that I'd had to become an author and actually not just do one book, but I did the commercial conversion uh, book in, in September and then wrote the SAS pension book in March this year. So to do two books in, well within the space of a year was was again you know quite incredible I guess it's a really good example of sometimes you have to create a void in your life in front of you to enable new ideas to flow and a, a new level of innovation and a new level of, of energy to take you into a you know a, a, a different zone and that's what leaving corporate life did for me I would I would suggest that most people would wish to uh, design their own parachute and then put it on before they jump out the corporate ship. And I was flat out restructuring companies until the day I left. So I, I jumped out the corporate ship and designed and put my parachute on, on the way down, which is quite fortuitous because I used to be a free fall skydiver in my twenties. Well, that's uh, not for me. I wouldn't be able to do that. I like control too much. <laughs> and openly admit that I've never, it always fascinates me to hear about, the corporate world because i've never i've never really been in well i've never been into it you know my only real employment was when i was 16 and i pushed trolleys at asda for a few years um i did have a brief stint with the nhs but that was a lot of fun so i don't really consider that job um but so moving into to property then you've got all of these things together um and then you are like you say you're assembling the parachute you're coming down so why don't we pick um why don't we pick one of your your deals that you've done and um, just give the listeners a bit of sort of an introduction on how you how you found the deal okay well it's um it's going to be tricky isn't it because you've done some good deals yeah yeah we've we got some very very good deals there tell you what i'll do let's pick one um it's called portal precinct it's in it's in uh the old city of Colchester um, in Essex. And it's a, it's a development project, but it's one with a difference because we acquired that in our trust. So uh, my business partner, myself, and our respective wives were the four trustees of a, of a SAS, a SAS pension. Um, and I use the word resonate. Um, if your, your listeners on, on your podcast were to think of what their pension means to them, you know, does it really resonate? Well, since 2016, we've acquired now two large commercial properties in our SaaS and redeveloped them. So I would say very much our pension is with us day in, day out, week in, week out. We're very driven as individuals, Nigel and I. We work hard. And I know that's not for everybody and nor is a SaaS pension. But to actually have your pension resonating I'm, I'm 50 this year, so five years before I could take any, any economic benefit, you know, my 25% drawdown um, from my pension, we've been able to complete not just one, but, but a, a second very, very economically viable um, commercial property development. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to pick that development because I think it picks on a number of flavours here. Yeah, that is perfectly fine. So this deal sounds really, really interesting. How did you first come about this deal then? Was it given to you via an agent? Did you source it yourself? Okay, so uh, this deal wasn't for sale. 
and we sourced it um, through a commercial lettings agent. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very small 800 square foot commercial unit and it was to let and not really on our radar to be honest and um, we saw it thought oh, might be might be interesting we'll we'll see if there's something a little bit more than meets the eye so we went and had a look at the viewing had a look around it was far too small and just really wasn't for us we weren't looking at leasehold at all we wanted freehold so uh we got chatting, we were out there on site with the, uh, with the commercial agent and um, we sort of very honest said like this, this really isn't for us. However, if you've got stock like this that we could acquire freehold, then we've got an interesting conversation to have. And the agent said, well, leave it with us. Uh, I'll have a chat with the vendor. Um, he came back and said, uh, said look, the vendor hadn't, hasn't considered selling, but um, now that you've raised it, he probably would actually. He owns the um, the property to the left and to the property to the right, and actually the property just over the courtyard as well. So there was a cluster of five commercial units. Three were vacant. Two had, um, I think one was a two-year and one was a five-year FRI lease, full repair and insure lease on them. Um, so very quickly, we had something which was of substantial interest, five commercial properties. Um, so it just goes to show in particularly a lot of people chasing permitted development uh, opportunities around it you know it can be it can be quite thin air out there at times um, particularly when vendor expectations are lagging by uh, by around about 12 months so the market seems quite uh, inflated at the moment mm. so there's a, a tip for people to to look at uh, commercial premises to let if they're being let that means somebody's feeling some pain somewhere along the line with mm. You know, vacant business rates and and the like. So, yeah. So Ryan, that's how we uh, came across that one, um, and we decided uh, to use a you know approach we've used many times before. Um, start with the end in mind. So we looked looked through the vacancy. Um, vacancy is great because it means we can add value and put some FRI commercial leases in there. Um, we're also very mindful of the, the upper storage areas to, to these premises. Now, this was in a conservation area, so we weren't looking at permitted development. Um, but because they're quite small commercial units, there was the opportunity, we thought, that we could put uh, a number of um, uh, residential dwellings, uh, apartments in the uppers. And that's exactly what we, we offered. We went full transparency, full disclosure, um, which is, is our raison d'etre, to be honest. Um, we tend not to hide things. We're quite open with the commercial agents. We're open with the vendors on our expectation. And I have to say that to date has never been abused. I think the, the open hand is the tightest grip, works rather well um, when you're uh, you know, very transparent with people. So we put a conditional offer in, conditional on us getting planning for residential on the uppers. So the timescales went, uh, first offer was the end of May, small counter offer, uh, early June. We got to exchange of contracts, uh, the end of June. We put planning in in July. We got full planning in September. And the 19th of September last year, 2018, uh, we achieved, um, achieved legal completion. And we acquired that property 
we actually acquired it in, in cash in our SAS. So the four trustees had um, transferred all of their uh, pensions um, into one SAS aggregated together. That gave us the ability to acquire this property in cash, moving tremendously quickly, um, having forced a substantial amount of appreciation in before we got to legal completion, which was thrilling. And we used our own seed capital to do that as well. Wow, because that's, that's always my, my next question after sort of how you knew what to, to put in the building is, is basically how you funded it. So you used, you brought together four SASs to fund this, this project. Well, um, four trustees. Um, none of those trustees before 2016 were, had, had SASs. So we all had, I think between the four of us, we had 11 standard pensions. Some were stakeholder pensions. There was a couple of final salary pensions in there. Um, so there were, there were pensions, um, standard pensions that many of your listeners will have. And uh, we went through an HMRC approval process to set up our SAS uh, via our sponsoring company, which is our development company. You must have a, a sponsoring company and increasingly HMRC are becoming quite prescriptive there. So you really do need to know what you're doing. And I couldn't find out the detail. That's why I ended up writing a, a book on the subject so that others, I could lay a roadmap out, if you like, for others to hopefully follow and um, you know, create some shared value out there. Mm. I think it's um, a lot of people are becoming quite, um, in they're being more in charge of their own finances now, aren't they? And especially, I mean, you know so much about these pensions. It's incredible. And uh, I think anyone listening should really, really, really take note of that and listen to to what you're you're saying i've just jumped in on you um, but i just want to reiterate that so everybody listening really really listens to what's coming next yeah it's um these i think i think what what i want to equip people is with the right level of, of emotional intelligence knowledge intelligence and the that eyes wide open approach this is your pensions you're dealing with it's not just your pension but look around you the ones you love you know you're a custodian for future generations here not just in numerical terms but what what what, what your actions stand for and they will resonate for generations to come at least that's my commitment to my future generations um so it's a sas isn't for everybody you know it's highly accountable and that money will literally sit in your account and rot away um, if you don't do something with it. On the flip side, it gives you a tremendous springboard, but you have to be fully equipped with the knowledge to understand how to do that because there are significant tax penalties for stepping over the line. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's probably enough on the, on the caveats there. Eyes wide open. I'm not selling anything here. This is making sure that people do their own bank grade due diligence and I use those words a lot bank grade due diligence because as a SAS trustee you are the bank you yeah. know you have those funds there and you need to be we, Nigel and I we are our own credit committee if we have an investment opportunity come to us if somebody would like to like us to invest in their development for instance we have a credit committee 
and we sit there and we'll go through our bank grade due diligence on counterparty risk as well as on the uh, the specific um, uh, due diligence on the uh, investment potential. Um, so we do that on our own deals. We do it on on uh, uh, other investment appraisals that come through as well. Mm. So that, that maybe that brings us a full circle to we've now got to legal completion. We've got this great deal. It's five commercial units. We've got the um, the ability to extend the uppers slightly and bring in four, uh, three, uh, two one bed and, and one two bed residential property uh, apartments above. And we start work on that. Now there's a, another uh, caveat here that you need to understand about SAS pensions is that a SAS pension can never own residential property. Now, I'll use my words very carefully there. What we use our SAS pension for is enablement. Now, I didn't say own. At no point do we ever own commercial property. Uh, sorry, residential property. So as an example, if you acquire a commercial property and it's got planning permission to convert some or all of it to residential, just because it's got planning, planning is a choice, isn't it? Yes. If you don't, if you don't enact that choice after three years, it expires. Um, so it gave us a window of opportunity to acquire it in the SAS and then establish how we're going to operate this, the structuring of this property. Um, our business, all of our businesses, are based on a, a premise that they're well advised, and we do pay quite a lot of money to um, specific experts to ensure we've got the right tax structuring. So we've got group company structures, we've got stamp duty, we've got VAT and tax planning, as well as compliance and governance planning across all of our entities. Now that might sound a mouthful, but it really just means doing it right. We don't want to move into the shady boundary areas of an HMRC investigation. So everything's got solid governance and probity behind it. Um, so we had to find a way where we keep all of the commercial units in the SAS and the residential units that we convert on the uppers are held outside of the SAS. And that's exactly what we achieve. It's, it's probably not something to go into because it's quite, uh, quite detailed on this uh, podcast. Um, but we managed to achieve in a very tax efficient way by saving on stamp duty through group company structures and by recognizing where we wanted to our assets to be held in VAT registered companies or indeed you know the final finished product for residential needs to be in a non-VAT registered business. So it's really understanding from a you know, business acumen point of view start with the end in mind how we structure it and how we navigate through that process and yes we pay quite a bit of money in terms of making sure it's structured elegantly and precisely but look we want a, a short outcome so i was quite happy at that our strategy um is to hold these forever um so quite happy to amortize any cost over a very lengthy period of time uh, in my own mind um and if we take a step back ryan let, let me tell you what this means and whilst our trust is is the the, the four trustees this one deal has created more 
equity than my entire 26 years of corporate contributions plus my return on those corporate pension contributions. Just one deal in less than a year has gained more equity injection into the, into the SAS pension than 26 years of corporate contributions. Quite, quite staggering. It is, I mean, it's the deal of the century for us, but our SAS is the primary driver behind our multi-generational legacy. Mm. And you have to be very careful with the return on time employed balance there because there aren't many of us who want to, you know, transfer our pensions and create a full-time job in managing our, our pensions. You know, it's not high on many of our lists. But when you look at the primary enablement and impactfulness that a SAS pension can have and, you know, take this deal, we'll repatriate all of our funds, we'll be back out, refinance within a year, and we'll have five commercial units which just cash flow about sixty odd thousand pounds a year. We'll have three residential that cash flow about twelve, thirteen thousand pounds a year, cash flow wise, half a million of equity, and we'll we'll have uh, our funds to go again. You know, if we can achieve just one deal like that every year for ten years. Yeah, you can imagine imagine the impact there. That'd be 50 commercial units. That'd be 30 residential units, all enabled by our SAS. I think that might slightly outperform a prudential pension plan. Oh, definitely. And especially, I think we've got quite a few listeners that are even younger than me, um, although I'm getting on a bit now at 31 it seems there's some upstarts now who are just really rocking on and doing some incredible things at 2021 and and younger and credit to them and I think about I'm not going to have the uh, I'm not going to have a state pension there's going to be no decent pension for me anyway so property has always been my pension and and incredible that you've done it that way and that's the way you've structured it Um, really really interesting and, and how it's created that amount of return in that space of time. Um, just, yeah, s- staggering. Absolutely. Well, that, I think it's that structuring where you force the appreciation in at the front end. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a risk taker. I'm actually quite a conservative, quite, quite, you know, very conservative person. My entire life has been about managing risk when you're, when you're deploying mission-critical data centers, you know, the largest data center we we did an infrastructure upgrade on had uh, $1 trillion worth of trade flowing through it. It linked the New York Stock Exchange and the Nikkei uh, uh, Stock Exchange. So there is there is no room for error. You know, a, a, business, a, a business risk strategy might say on the face of it, it can accommodate um, uh, five nines resilience, you know, 99.999%. But you ask any one of our, you know, Goldman's, JP Morgan, any of the investment banks, whether they would actually accept a 0.001% failure rate of the lights going out on a data center. No, you know, that, that's just not even in their wildest uh, nightmares. Yeah. So understanding risk, mitigating risk, but you can't manage risk unless you've got the, the acumen to identify what risk looks like in the first place. Yeah, that's yeah. I really, really agree with that. 
and I mean, you've been giving away some incredible, incredible lessons over the course of this podcast as well. So what, over the course of this deal then that we've been chatting about, what, what are the biggest lessons in which you've learned? Oh, um, I think it's, um, in many respects, this deal was the perfect storm. It came at the right time for where, where we were sat in a, a liquid state. Um, the right deal came along. We had the right time scale and bandwidth to be able to achieve it. Um, we had courage in our own convictions. And bearing in mind, I'd spent with Nigel the best part of two and a half years researching. We'd freed up our funds. You know, we'd embarked on this for from early 2016. So again, start from the end in mind. This deal was was, I guess, fairly inconsequential, really, because we were looking at what is our 20-year plan here? Mm. You know, what is, what is, how are we going to deploy this multi-generational legacy, not just for ex its existing trustees, but what about for our future generations? Now, Nigel and I have got four children each. Yeah, so there are, there are eight custodians of our future legacy out there. So this is about an educational enablement unit creating a deep rolling you know, juggernaut of, of educational momentum here, um, which far outstrips the economic return. You know, there's no point in leaving a legacy if you haven't got the custodians armed and equipped to, to seize the, the legacy and take it to a, an exponentially greater level of impactfulness than, than ever we could. So there are so many lessons here, but at some stage you have to decide, and there is, however you close that risk gap, there will always be that leap of faith. Do I feel as I'm now fully equipped to take that next step, whether that be to move into a SAS pension environment, to do that development? And there will be things you have to work out along the way. And as long as you're comfortable in yourself, and I've, I've never lacked confidence, but I've always been very, very clear that I never want to be arrogant. Um, you know, remember what I said earlier on, you know, I really hold true that humility is one of the greatest business strengths you can have, keeps us all honest. Um, and Nigel and I are always cross-checking each other. You know, there's a very healthy balance of tension and risk and reward there. Um, so all of those things come together to en enable an asset like this. Um, and the, the, every part of our business, whether it be Equigroup, our development business, our SaaS, any of our other investment vehicles, I've always tried to underpin the creation of shared value. Uh, CSV, creation of shared value, is, has been something close to my heart for nigh on 20 years now um bearing in mind i i was uh, my major supplier in acquiring and uh, building data centers and the like was the construction industry and not just the uk construction industry but the construction industry around the whole of emea and asia pacific regions and the one common trait i saw across the construction industries in all those countries and continents was that if I want to make more profit, you're going to make less profit. There was that robbing the bodies and bayoneting the wounded approach to, to, to taking profit. Mm. Um, now, what we had the opportunity of becoming 
as we left corporate life, and I'd always put these values in my, in my corporate life, but we are the catalysts. We, in, in, as being a developer, we're creating that shared value. If we can create that value and share that value throughout society and throughout supply chain, um, that's an incredible, that's an incredible feeling. And I think the culture and the vision and values within that are enshrined in the DNA and embodiment of our businesses um, is incredibly important. Now that becomes very meaningful when it's your family, when your fellow trustees are right at the heart of the consequences of creation of shared value. And that's why in, in sharing um, the great news of, of what may be in the art of the possible for you as a, a potential SAS pension trustee in the future, you know, it's about collaboration. SAS trustees have the money and want to invest and in some cases need money and need investment. So I created an organization two years ago now, which is, you know, we've got uh, around about 2000 members now. Uh, it's called the SAS Alliance. You referred to it in your kind opening um, comments. And the SAS Alliance is, is a collaboration network for people who want to understand what becoming a SAS trustee is, um, the custodianship and legacy, but also equipping them with the knowledge and the how-to so that they, they enter this world with their eyes firmly wide open. There's a great, great seated duty of care and responsibility um, when you're looking after that, uh, that legacy for future generations, let alone to keep compliant with HMRC. So I set up the SAS Alliance for, uh, as education, as collaboration, as connection, looking at risk management, risk mitigation and optimised returns. Of, of uptime of capital invested so that's really i mean you can just tell from my passion it's kind of oozing out now um and i could talk forever on this and we're you know we're doing many great events around the country to raise awareness and, and increasingly looking at a funding platform as well so so that you know many people have a requirement to have uh, inexhaustible supply of investment for the right type of deals can meet people who have the appetite to invest in the type of risk reward profile that that your investment opportunity might might possess fantastic it sounds like an incredible platform and you know there's been so many sort of snippets of of gold i think that you've given away on the podcast and my favorite that that i've wrote down is um do i feel like i'm fully equipped to take the next step one of the things that i always say to to everybody in in my trading business on Betfair is, you know, it, very similar to yourself, work from the end in mind. What's, what are you wanting to achieve? What trade are you wanting to do? And then take every single step back from that. What has to happen for, for that to go your way and find out everything you can. And that's been, that, that's served me so well in property as well as, as trading. And just to, to hear you, you say that with the success that you've had through businesses is really, really good. I like, I like that. So I'm going to let you go because I know you're a very, very busy man. Um, but just touching on the, the, the SAS Alliance, if people want to get in touch with you and they want to find out more, where is the best place for them to, uh, to connect with you? Well, they can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and, and Facebook. Um, for the two websites where um, I do most of my uh, 
business and, and, and informative work. The SAS Alliance website is, is www.sas, that's double S-A-S, sasalliance.org. Um, and you can find out lots of uh, the networking and events and, and knowledge that we have there. And then anything to do with me on my developer side, commercial to residential conversions, that's on my personal website, which is www.markstokesuk.com. So they're the two main areas. And PM me on, on uh, Facebook and you know, I'm uh, very active there. So always happy to, to, to help people point them in the right direction. Fantastic. And I will make sure that the links to those sites as well are in the show notes. So everybody will be able to just easily get to them. Mark, you have been an absolute gem. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to come on the show and share some of your insights. My absolute pleasure and keep up the great work with your brilliant podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan.